0: I'm Marshall Kozloff, and I'm Mike Duran. Welcome back to Counterbalance. For our third episode, we have an incredibly important conversation with Clive Hamilton. Clive is a journalist from Australia who has done a lot of recent work cataloging the conflict between Australia and China that is going to get into a lot of the questions that policymakers, thinkers, actors are going to have to consider as they look at the Asia-Pacific. He is the author of Hidden Hand, Exposing How the Chinese Communist Party is Reshaping the World, and Silent Invasion, China's Influence in Australia. Now, Mike, you have wanted to speak with Clive for a while, so I was curious what stuck out about his work that made you want to speak with him?
1: Well, I think it was it was two things. The first thing was just the power of his writing. Um, his book, his first book, uh, uh, Silent Invasion, changed my mind about China. It opened my eyes to the China threat, changed my thinking uh, to the extent that I had any really serious thinking at that point about it, uh, because he argues that uh, China is trying to detach Australia from the United States. Um, and, uh, and he argues extremely persuasively. And I mean, how often can you say that a single book really changed your mind? There was that, but then the, the second thing is that the book, uh, had a huge impact in Australia. Um, I was not the only person whose, uh, mind was changed. It really rang, uh, the alarm bells in Australia and it, um, Uh, had a massive impact Australia's out in front among Western countries of uh, trying to organize in order to push back against these uh, aggressive Chinese tactics and a lot of that uh, started with Clive Hamilton's book this is the second of our three episodes so far
0: that's focused on China we really are taking time to set the stage of the probably the preeminent foreign policy issue that we're going to go into and I'm especially looking forward after this conversation now that we've set the stage getting really deep into the policy aspects of these debates these questions of what is to be done these questions of now we know the stakes what actual steps should policymakers take to move forward so I'm personally really looking forward to getting into that the rest of the season.
1: Yeah. So am I. I mean, I, I think that the China question is absolutely the, the number one question and, uh, it should be, uh, not the focus of, uh, every episode, but it should be a major theme running through our podcast. I'll,
0: I'll flip this around for a second though, Mike, I'm curious, do you think it's possible that there can be foreign policy crowding out? Um, both in the real world and on this podcast, is it possible that we can focus so much on China issues this year that we'll crowd out other necessary issues? And is it possible in our actual foreign policy, if a conversation is too dominated by, let's say, the Middle East or by Asia-Pacific, we won't focus on the full spectrum? How do you think about that from a policymaking perspective?
1: With regards to our podcast, I mean, I think that's our our strong suit. And uh, we'll, we, we should be doing foreign policy more than more than other issues, not to the total exclusion of other issues, but we should definitely be doing that. And China clearly is just the number one issue. Uh, And it's the one that I'm most curious about. I mean, I'm a Middle East expert. And um, over time, I've come to see um, the Middle East as a kind of subset of a larger problem that, uh, that begins with China. I think. So, um, I want to kind of move beyond my region a little bit and, uh, um, and explore some of these questions that I don't have really clear answers to, but also, um, you know, I have to say, uh, I have to work hard to to think of guests to come on the Middle East because I know the Middle East discussion so well. I'm I'm less curious about it. I mean, I'm a participant in it rather than somebody who's exploring different ideas. Um, maybe we should get some people here on the on on the Middle East and on some other areas too, um, Europe, Africa, uh, and so on. But China is the number one issue.
0: No, that's really well said, Mike. Before we jump in, just want to remind everyone, this is our third episode. We've really appreciated the reviews that folks have given us on Apple Podcasts. We've really appreciated the social media shares, and we've also appreciated folks subscribing and really committing to this podcast for the long term. As Mike just said, there's a lot of really deep issues that we're going to focus on this year, so we are excited to keep them coming at you. And a huge thank you to the Hudson Institute for supporting the work of this podcast. Let's dive in.
1: So uh, Clive Hamilton, uh, it's uh, really exciting to have you here. Uh, you know, before we g- get into the book itself, I just, I have, I've been curious about you because uh, I've looked at you on the web yeah. and you've gone through, I think, a kind of um, you know, political intellectual journey, which I think a lot of people are going to go through. <laughs> That's a, uh, yes. If that makes sense, maybe, I, maybe, I, maybe I'm yes. reading that wrong, but could, could you just start by way of introduction and just tell us what your political intellectual journey has been, and then we can dig into it from there.
2: Sure, yeah. I mean, it, it is kind of interesting because um, I come from the political left and, uh, and remain very much of the political left and uh, set up a progressive think tank here in Canberra, which I ran for 14 years. Uh, most of my work over the years, uh, one could almost say decades, uh, has been on issues like um, uh, uh, neoliberalism, consumerism, a great deal of work on climate change uh, and the need to take uh, urgent action. Um, I wrote about five books on climate change, actually. And uh, and uh, in 2016, um, there were some uh, really uh, fascinating and disturbing news reports in uh, in Australian newspapers from very well-qualified journalists based in China or who were China experts writing in Australia. And they were stories about very wealthy Chinese or Chinese-Australian businessmen who had become the largest donors to both of our major political parties. And then it was pointed out by these journalists that these business people had links with the Chinese Communist Party. And this struck me as very kind of worrying and puzzling. And so I decided, uh, essentially because I'd become so jaded writing about climate change, that I needed a new project. So what the hell, I'm going to write a book about uh, China or rather Chinese Communist Party influence in Australia. So... I did what every good researcher uh, does at the outset of a project, and and that is to go and talk to the people who actually know something about the subject. Uh, And so that's what I did. I spoke to a bunch of sinologists and those those journalists themselves who are writing stories and realised that there was something much deeper going on here and decided, yes, I would pursue a book, having asked, well, somebody else must be writing this book, surely. Apparently not. So I thought, well, I can do that. Um, And... And I met early on with John Garno, who played an extremely important role in the debate on CCP influence in Australia, both as a journalist and then as an advisor, senior advisor to the Australian Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. And uh, having spent an hour with him talking about the issue, uh, I was leaving and John said to me, Clive, you know, <clears throat> it's really important that you are writing this book. And I thought, well, why? And he said, because you're from the left. And it didn't really sink in at the time, but boy, has it now. And that is because Hmm. while conservative people are open to the possibility that the Chinese Communist Party is engaged in a massive program of influence and interference and that China under the CCP is a very dangerous adversary, many people on the left, not all by any means, but many people on the left are deeply resistant to the idea And so, um, because I'm from the left, that meant that more people on the left were more open to it. You know, I wasn't just some, you know, conservative um, person, you know, worrying about communist infiltration again. Uh, I was a person who had a bit of credibility, I suppose, for them. Um, As a result, I've lost a lot of friends. uh, And. (laughs) <laughs> Met, and made, some, made a lot of new ones, but lost a lot of friends um, because many people on the left in particular just really uh, aren't ready to accept the basic story in Silent Invasion.
0: A question, because our listenership is North American-centric, a lot of people consider the U.S.'s relationship with China to be akin to a second Cold War. Um, What did the first Cold War look like from the Australian perspective? I think after World War I, World War II, Australia seems to leave the foreign policy historical conversation on the American side. So can you just articulate that a bit?
2: Uh, Yeah, you're right, uh, Marshall. After the Second World War, Australian foreign policy drifted quite strongly away from Britain and towards the US. And that meant that a lot of political influences flowed into Australia from the United States. Um, In Australia, there was uh, quite a strong uh, Communist Party. Uh, There was quite strong Communist uh, Party influence within the trade union movement. And there was a great deal of um, fear and panic on the side of the Conservatives about a uh, Soviet influence through the Communist Party in Australia. The Communist Party actually splintered uh, uh, after 56, and then again in the 60s. Uh, uh, but uh, really the the influence of the left exploded in the late 60s, early 70s, and this was very much the new left, as in the United States, the counterculture, the anti-Vietnam War movement, because, of course, we were a US ally uh, in, the, in Vietnam, um, firing guns and killing people and being killed, and there was a massive anti-war movement here. And then the new social movements with... You know, feminism and uh, indigenous rights, and so on, and so that very, uh, you know quite tracked um, US politics, although with some quite strong uh, local flavours here uh, in in this country. So uh, the we never had the kind of intensity of uh, of the McCarthyist witch hunt here in Australia, although our intelligence agents ASIO. Uh, did have a strong element of paranoia and was pursuing people on the left for all kinds of absurd reasons and imagining conspiracies were there when there were none. Um, there were conspiracies, but uh, not as many as ASIO uh, believed um, and so that was a kind of background and the thinking that many people fr- brought from the Cold War into this new
1: uh, china issue uh, clive when when you say you lost friends over your um, your position um is it this cold war aspect is that when when you think about some of the some of the more heated conversations you had with friends were they were they saying to you that uh what you're doing is you're you're aligning with the with the with the most right wing uh, elements in the United states who are pushing for a new Cold War, or was there some other aspect of your position that was disturbing to them?
2: Well, there was a, a bit of that, but um, and, and, the, and, and attitudes on, on the left. Uh, now, I don't want to exaggerate because there are plenty of people on the left, particularly the moderate left, who completely agree uh, with what I wrote. In fact, we're influenced by what I wrote and believe, you know, it is a major problem. But the pushback from the left has been quite complex in its uh, explanation, but I think there, there are two dominant factors. One is um, anti-Americanism, uh, and it's a similar kind of argument that, you know, you might not like the Soviet Union much, but it is nevertheless a very important counterbalancing uh, force to the power of the United States. Uh, and I think there's quite a strong element of that, you know, uh, you might not like uh, the CCP that much, but, you know, it is, uh, it, it is muscling up to the United States and, uh, and is a counterweight to, to, to the, United, to, to the U- US influence in the world. There's a strong hangover in the more, you know, the more uh, far left of, of, of kind of anti-imperialist talk uh, based on the kind of activities of the US in Asia and Latin America in the 50s and 60s. But I think the most powerful argument here in Australia, coming from people on the left, including a lot of people on the moderate left, is um, a fear—in fact, I'd say a terror—of the rise of anti-Asian and anti-Chinese racism. This is ah. a this is an extraordinarily powerful trigger point, given Australia's you know, lamentable, appalling history of racism of of various kinds and including the anti-chinese riots on the gold fields in the 1840s and 1850s and australia's white australia policy which excluded uh people of color from migrating to australia up until the early 19 or late 1960s so people on the left have a a kind of hair trigger on anything that might be construed as racist Mm. and so it it didn't matter how uh how much I stressed within Silent Invasion that this is all about the Chinese Communist Party. It's not about Chinese people and it's not about uh, people of Chinese heritage living in Australia. Um, Nevertheless, people thought this is an attack. Some people thought this is an attack on people of uh, Chinese heritage. And so they just uh, condemned uh, and dismissed the book and the entire argument on that basis.
0: The key question here then is, what does China want with Australia? What is the relationship between the two countries?
2: Ultimately, what China would love to do would be to break Australia away from its alliance with the United States. Australia is a kind of problem for China because it sees this part of the world, that is uh, Southeast Asia at least, um, as its Territory, its backyard, its sphere of influence. And yet, here you have this strongly democratic uh, uh, European, essentially, country, which is a strong US ally uh, down south of the region that uh, it needs to pacify. In addition, Australia is important to China as a source of uh, natural resources. um, And It therefore wants uh, to be able to exert a great deal of influence over Australia and has at its disposal the most powerful weapon to do that. And that is uh, Australia's uh, very large trade dependence on China. Uh, Some 30 or 40 percent of our exports go to China and a similar amount of our or perhaps more of our imports come from China. And as you know, in the last 12 months, China, uh, or Beijing, I should say, um, has become so irritated with Australia's uh, refusal to kowtow, essentially, that it has uh, implemented a series of very strategic uh, trade bans uh, on Australian exports with a view to not only sending a general message that we are really unhappy with you and we are going to make you pay But, and I think this is a more important and often not recognised objective in those trade bans, and that is to mobilise within Australia, Australian industry leaders to become the kind of cutting edge of those advancing Beijing's interests within the domestic political sphere. And it's been very successful. Uh, You see Australian business people and, and executives of various industries jumping up and down and saying, We have to fix the relationship. The federal government must do something. Well, uh, what that means is uh, changing our policy of putting up barriers to CCP influence and allowing uh, China into our critical infrastructure, into our telecommunications network, uh, investing wherever they like, um, and abolishing our foreign interference laws, which Beijing, even though it insists it never engages in foreign interference, really doesn't like, and uh, undertaking a whole range of actions that we took in order to protect our sovereignty and our, and our democratic system. And so now we have uh, Australian business people saying, Canberra, you have to fix the relationship. Uh, whereas in fact, it's Beijing that's caused the breakdown in the relationship. The, the relationship can only be fixed in Beijing uh, unless the Australian government capitulates and which would effectively say, For the foreseeable future, we will be a puppet of Beijing.
1: When when I look at it from a from a distance, because I'm um, I I am like to say I'm not an expert on Australia, um, you know, is is an understatement. Um, But just from reading the newspapers and reading about the the various controversies there there have been. the general impression I've got is one of just real admiration for the way the Australians have stood up uh, to the Chinese and kind of sounded the alarm for the world. Uh, your your book being the, you know, right at the at the forefront of that of that movement. So I, uh, you know, when I look at at the debate over here, I, I think we look a lot. I think we're a lot slower to wake up. I think a lot of people still haven't woken up to the kinds of infiltration, and I think that's the right word that you've you know described in your um, in your works. And so I it, I I I just kind of assumed when I heard about the latest round of uh, um, you know of of trade um, of the, the the latest round of the trade war that they were that the Chinese actions were going to um, elicit a really Horrible backlash in Australia. Um, is is that wrong? And and how would you, if you if you were um, you know evaluating the situation today between what you'd like to see Australia do and what it's doing, who do you think is winning this, the the Chinese or the uh, or people like yourself? China's losing in Australia, um, definitely. Uh,
2: over the last three to four years, uh, there's been a massive massive shift in. Australian public attitudes towards uh, China uh, in general, uh, but in particular towards the, the, the CCP regime. And if you, one of the ways of looking at this is, is to track public opinion, um, uh, you know, the Pew study looks, uh, compares uh, attitudes to China, favorable, unfavorable across very many countries. And there are also surveys within Australia by the Lowy Institute, for example, and we've seen uh, Austra- the Australian people go from a generally positive view of China, some you know, 80% or so have had a favourable favorable, favorable view of China. And that's completely collapsed down to about 15%. And oh. throughout the Australian community, there's, tr- there's actually a tremendous amount of hostility towards Beijing and, and it's bullying. I mean... Australians feel as though Beijing is trying to bully us, to stand over us, to insult us, to intimidate us. And you know what? People just don't like that. People (laughs) do not like being bullied. And so we saw the Turnbull government uh, take some measures in uh, 2017 and 18, uh, where Malcolm Turnbull himself, the former prime minister, actually underwent quite a seismic shift in... Uh, in his uh, attitude towards China, as a result of newspaper reports, but also intelligence briefings. And he uh, and his government began to put in place a whole range of measures, probably the central one being the foreign interference law, which is a world first and other nations are now looking at copying. And those measures that taken by the government, uh, continued by the Morrison government, have been uh, extremely popular uh, in Australia, strong public backing. And when uh, Beijing started to uh, uh, rant and rave last year about Australia, uh, after Australia was the first nation to call for an independent international inquiry into the origins of the pandemic, um, Beijing was enraged uh, and started to impose this, this series of rolling trade bans. And the Morrison government, to its credit, and you know, I don't have much sympathy at all for the Morrison government otherwise, but to its great credit, drew a line in the sand and said, we are not going to be uh, intimidated, we're not going to be bullied. Uh, These uh, measures that you want us to change are protecting our democratic process, they are protecting our sovereignty as a nation, and we simply will not back down. And that stance, uh, despite the economic costs that uh, it has brought about, has... uh, received extremely strong uh, public backing. So yes, right, um, Australia has been out in the lead. We've been paying for it. Um, but yeah, I've, having now written a book with Marika Olberg about the same kind of CCP uh, influence and interference activity uh, around the world, you see a kind of cycle of waking up and pushing back. So we're now seeing several other countries around the world, uh, Britain, Sweden, a couple of smaller European states, Lithuania, the Czech Republic, um, saying, well, no, we're not going to be dominated and bullied by uh, China under the CCP. And they're starting to implement laws, uh, because, partly because public attitudes are shifting.
0: You've referenced the foreign interference law a couple of times, especially as a model. Could you define and explain it for the listeners?
2: Well, it's really interesting because what uh China or ccp is doing in australia and elsewhere is a form of interference that's that's not been recognized and therefore not been uh outlawed you know we we all have uh well most countries have laws about foreigners can't make political donations uh they may need to register um and of course we have espionage laws so the kind of activity that uh, CCP is being engaged in, in Australia are not captured by any laws. For example, mobilising the Chinese diaspora in Australia, which is very large, some 5% of the population have Chinese heritage, uh, some of it going back to the gold fields, but uh, a huge increase in the population of Chinese heritage people over the last 15 years uh, through the migration programme. Um, not to mention huge numbers of international students until COVID and tourists. And so the CCP has been mobilising uh, these people uh, to engage politically um, in ways that benefit uh, the CCP and doing it covertly. Of course, there are many people who hate this, Chinese people, people of Chinese heritage, I should say, and are very anti CCP, but there are many within the diaspora who have been willing one reason or another to uh, be proxies in, in effect for the CCP's political activities in Australia. So that kind of interference or turning up at demonstrations and shouting down, you know, Tibetan uh, demonstrators for example, uh, or engaging in intimidatory uh, tactics. Um, well, none of these things were illegal. And so the foreign interference law defined this new crime and the, and the parliamentary draftsman who visited the United States in the process, did a, did a really, really interesting job. And they defined foreign interference as <clears throat> any, ac- any covert activity carried out on behalf of a foreign power or a foreign principle, because it could be a big company linked to the state, uh, an activity that interferes in, a de- in the exercise of a democratic right or influences a political process. That is defined as foreign interference, and it's now a crime and it carries heavy penalties. And um, it really went to the heart of the many of the CCP's influence operations uh, in Australia, which is why Beijing was so unhappy when the parliament passed that law uh, and why it ha- Beijing has been asking the Australian government uh, to repeal the law. Uh, so... Th- uh, Other other nations have been sending delegations here or asking speakers from here to go overseas to explain what foreign interference is and how we have uh, uh, attempted to protect ourselves from it.
0: And the last question before we move to the broader international picture, I have absolutely no idea how the Australian system of higher education works, obviously, but in the US at least, there's particular controversy around international students, particularly due to part of the way that many institutions, many state-based public institutions are run in terms of tuition payments. How? What are the lessons that American listeners should take from the Australian experience when it comes to foreign students um, and relationships between um, higher education institutions and the CCP?
2: Yes. This is a massive issue in Australia. Um, <clears throat> I notice in the United States, uh, most of the attention uh, on uh, China's influence in universities is focused on technology, technology theft, thousand talents programs, and so on. There's some of that in, in Australia um, work uh, that, some of it's reported uh, in Silent invasions. It's mostly the work of Alex Josky, a brilliant young scholar here in Australia who, um, of China's heritage himself, Um, who has uh, done brilliant detective work to uncover very deep links between Australian uh, research labs and the People's Liberation Army, scientists coming uh, from PLA universities, uh, often uh, uh, secretly officers of the PLA, uh, to work on uh, militarily-related research at Australian universities. When we exposed this, the universities were extremely resistant. They wouldn't even admit admit it uh, when they kind of were kind of forced to admit that it might be a bit of a problem then, or it's not their problem. If the federal government is going to let them in, then what can we do besides we need the money anyway? So that is a really big problem, which we're still dealing with. Alex is doing more brilliant work in that area and really putting the blowtorch on the belly of the university sector uh, and the government. But the bigger issue in Australia, uh, uh, beyond uh, technology transfer, especially military-related technology transfer, has been the way in which the uh, Chinese embassy and the consulates in capital cities in Australia have mobilised for political purposes Chinese students on university campuses. Now, the proportion of uh, uh, Chinese students at Australian universities is a multiple of the proportion in the United States. It's huge. And the universities, uh, therefore, have become uh, extremely sensitive to anything that might upset Beijing and interfere with the flow of cash from China uh, with these Chinese students. And therefore, the universities, particularly the most prestigious ones, the so-called group of eight, um, have bent over backwards Uh, not to do anything that might um, upset uh, Beijing, including suppress uh, free uh, speech on campuses by, for example, forcing uh, lecturers who have made some comment that Chinese students have found offensive, hurt the feelings of the Chinese people, um, forcing them to issue grovelling apologies when there's absolutely no reason at all. (laughs) When they put up a a, a map showing Taiwan as a separate country, then the students, often at the urging of the local consulate and the local Chinese language media, another massive problem, will become enraged and write letters and carry out protests and how dare you insult the motherland by showing Taiwan as a separate country. And the the who who put up the offending map, you know, have to issue a grovelling apology. Sorry, I didn't
1: understand, and I won't do it again. I mean, this is this is revolting. But, and, this, this and this is all orchestrated from Beijing. This isn't uh, you know the just the, uh, I, I, just to, just to emphasise. This is not the, the the students don't actually feel insulted. They're they're being instructed from Beijing to 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 mount this protest.
2: Well, like all student bodies, the the students have you know, mixed political opinions and views. Uh, Views which are very tightly controlled uh, on campuses, they're terrified of saying anything that might be interpreted as anti-party or anti-China because they are immediately reported by their fellow students to the consulate. And within days, and in some cases within hours, uh, the parents of the students in China will receive a knock on the door from the Ministry of State Security saying your your son or daughter in Australia is uh, creating trouble. You need to uh, keep them in line. Which is a frightening thing to happen to any uh, Chinese right. parent. Um, yeah. So some of the some of the students uh, would love to learn about democracy and Tibet and Hong Kong, but at uh, Australian campuses, uh, but uh, they're too afraid. Uh, on the other hand, there are some Chinese students, quite a lot, who are ultra patriotic and have mm-hmm. been brainwashed into a, a kind of jingoism and a hair trigger on anything. Uh, that is on the CCP's list of um, sensitive issues like Hong Kong or Taiwan, the Dalai Lama, uh, you know, um, uh, Xinjiang. And if any, any uh, thing comes up in class from the lecturer that's against the interests of China, uh, hurts the feelings of the Chinese people, then uh, they create a ruckus. And the universities, rather than say, well, sorry, this is academic freedom, you know, like it or lump it, uh, the universities intervene and quietly let on that, you know, terribly sorry, uh, we shouldn't have happened, uh, we'll we'll correct the situation. I mean, you know, it is a fundamental assault on uh, academic freedom in Australia.
1: So there was—I mean, there was a time when I think Western institutions uh, would see themselves as a kind of great lung of democracy, and they would take these students from abroad and and expose them to our values, and then, then they would go back home, and that would have a kind of um, seeding effect of you know little sprouts of of democracy. But instead, what they're learning is that they can actually take what should be great institutions of democratic culture and they can manipulate them to the will of the Chinese Communist Party.
2: Well, students today in China from the day they're born and certainly from the first day at school undergo an intense process of indoctrination. Um, And so uh, by the time they get to Australia, they, uh, for the most part, Find it extremely difficult to think uh, independently. There are some who do, and uh, if only we could have more of them. Um, and you know, some of them come here, and, and they've never heard of the Tiananmen, Tiananmen Square events of 1989. They just it's just never been mentioned, mm. um, even though it was the most important event in modern Chinese history. You know, since the 19 since the Cultural Revolution, at least. Um, so they're just completely um, ignorant about history and they don't have uh, an ability to really, for the most part, to, to grasp these concepts. And it's a very dangerous thing to do. If they ask you know, questions about democracy and its benefits in class, then they will be in serious trouble very quickly mm. from, from the consulate. Um, and so there is a very interesting study, which I think I mentioned in, in, in uh, Silent Invasion, which compared the uh, patriotic sentiments of students, Chinese students when they go overseas and their patriotic sentiment when they return. And they're more patriotic and more supportive of the Chinese government when they return uh, to China. So this idea that we have, that if we bring uh, uh, students from autocratic regimes to our democratic countries, they'll breathe the air of freedom uh, and independent inquiry Um, and understand the uh, wonders of democracy and take those attitudes back to the authoritarian state is, uh, I'm afraid, um, in China's case, um, a liberal fantasy.
0: What's so fascinating about that is I think it gets to a difference between Cold War I in Cold War II in that this time at least the gap isn't as much economic if you're a Chinese student who can go abroad, who can't afford these high tuition rates. It's not as if you're returning to pure material poverty in the West as this beacon of blue jeans and television and excitement. In many ways, the Chinese state is capable of giving you more than enough on that end. And we're just seeing the gap and difficulty if if that isn't the pitch you're giving people.
2: Yes, indeed. I mean, one of the profound differences with the Cold War is that, you know, I mean, who traded with the Soviet Union? You know, it was minimal. Um, uh, And if you look today, you know, uh, China's GDP is, what, 90, 85, 90% of that of the United States. Um, You know, how big Russia's GDP is? It's about the same as Australia's. Uh, So, uh, I mean, of course, Russia, the Russian Federation, because of, you know, it's nuclear weapons and it's and it's uh, the nature of the state under Putin um, uh, uh, projects far more power than Australia um, but you know economically it's a basket case uh, sadly for the Russian people but uh, in China um, for particularly for well educated young Chinese people there are enormous opportunities to live a comfortable life and, and to do well, as long as they stay out of politics. Um, and so, yes, the, the, the attraction of, of uh, getting a, um, a kind of pass into uh, a, a developed country like the United States or Australia has certainly diminished a great deal. Um, it's still the case that many Chinese students see studying in Australia as a pathway towards Australian citizenship. But the 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 attraction has uh, diminished, I think, quite a lot. Uh, particularly as you say, uh, the the Chinese government makes a great effort uh, to look after talented uh, young people, to attract them back uh, to China, and uh, persuade them to contribute to the rejuvenation of the motherland.
1: Uh, Clive, uh, let me um, pose to you what seems to me to be a kind of contradiction and see if you agree with me and then if you can explain it. Um, in, in reading your books, I mean, uh, the one of the greatest insights that you gave me um, is the uh, incredibly sophisticated apparatus that the Chinese Communist Party has for infiltrating our society, uh, uh, our societies, uh, manipulating them, uh, co-opting the elite in a lot of of different ways, Um, so much more sophisticated than what the former Soviet Union was. Um, And yet there's all this bullying that you mentioned, which is really crude. And so the contradiction that I think I perceive is that there's there's this um, very sophisticated, subtle, supple way of of getting their claws into people. So, th- and then, and then, the, and then, once they have their claws into them, then it gets very crude very quickly. And there isn't a kind of middle ground. And I, 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 what what seems to be a contradiction there is: how can they be so good at the at the at the first part of the process, and then? And, and then so, um, so kind of hand-fisted at the second part.
2: Yeah, no, it's a really good question that a lot of us um, uh, still wonder about. And, and, you know, it should be said, and this is part of the answer to your question, that there are many top cadres in the Communist Party itself who are asking exactly the same question. How come we have had this enormous... Uh, apparatus of sophisticated and subtle covert influence in all kinds of countries following through on Deng Xiaoping's hide-and-bide strategy, hide your power and bide your time. And now um, we're out there trying to bully the world, the whole world, into submission. And, I mean, I I think the answer is a lot to do with the kind of complex politics of uh, Xi Jinping uh, and how he sees his leadership, uh, how he rules in China with the cultivation of very strong uh, nationalism and the way in which, and, and presumably a decision that he and uh, senior cadres around him made that China doesn't need to hide its power anymore. We can go out there and engage in wolf warrior diplomacy and the crudest kind of, not just bullying, but just just plain insults, I mean... The deputy ambassador in Australia, uh, in the embassy, just a couple of kilometres from where I am now, gave a, a speech the other day in which he, he, he described people in Australia who uh, criticised Beijing as scumbags. I mean, <laughs> this is a top diplomat, scumbags. Um, and in Sweden, we, we, you know, the, the ambassador said that you know, for our enemies in Sweden, you know, we have shotguns, we're coming after you with shotguns. I mean, it doesn't get much cruder than that. Um, And so the only explanation is that Xi Jinping believes that China can get away with it now. It continues to carry on its uh, program of economic coercion, of subtle influence uh, within elites, but it also believes it can conduct itself, because it's now so powerful, so confident, um, you know, alone. It isn't really because it had a massive chip on its shoulder, but nevertheless, um, and, that, and that it will not meet the kind of resistance in, in the rest of the world that will undo uh, what it's been working on for decades. That seems to be the only plausible explanation, uh, but there are powerful or well, influential senior people in the party who are quietly saying, you know, this has been crazy, we really need to go back uh, to a more subtle form of influence and interference because uh, it, it's not our interest to create enemies in the way we
0: have. So for our last question here, Clive, you've described over this four or five-year period that you've engaged in this space, a differing changing reaction over time to influence operations, regional hegemony, et cetera it seems to be they you're making a semi-optimistic case for, for action or for a changing approach to actually have effect. Is that a correct interpretation of your work? Are you optimistic or is it on a knife's edge from a certain perspective? Uh,
2: what is it? It's uh, Wednesday today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you might have me on a slightly more optimistic day. Most days I'm pretty pessimistic to tell you the truth. Uh, sometimes I think that, CCP influence has spread so deeply in so many societies. And its economic power is um, so big and and growing so quickly, uh, unless something happens, and something can always happen, it's expected China will overtake uh, the US within 10 years as the largest uh, uh, nation in the world economically. And it uses that economic power ruthlessly. So it really depends on two things. One is uh, the capacity of the rest of the world led by the United States to push back uh, and take measures to constrain and limit the uh, exercise of China's power abroad. Uh, and, And so the next year, as we get a steer on what the Biden administration is going to do, is absolutely crucial. The early signs are pretty good. Um, And the other factor it depends on is what happens in China, both at a leadership level, but I think uh, perhaps more importantly, because there are no significant signs of destabilisation within the top leadership of the party, um, what happens in China uh, economically, uh, in particular, whether there will be a financial crash that might uh, set China back um, uh, a long way. So it's, it's hard to say, um, truthfully, most days I'm pretty pessimistic,
0: but we caught you on a Wednesday. So that, uh, to a certain degree (laughs) makes it work for everyone. Clive, Uh, thank you so much for joining the show. Um, take us out, Mike.
1: Well, uh, Clive, uh, thanks a lot. I was hoping that you were going to leave us on a more positive note because uh, I just look at the impact your work has had uh, in such a short period of time, and that gives me a little bit of hope. But uh, I'm I'm worried about us too, so uh, we'll leave on a worried note. Uh, although you did say it was a uh, it was optimistic, so
2: yeah. Well, we should be worried. Um, complacency is Xi Jinping's greatest friend, so. Uh, I'm glad I hope that uh this uh podcast uh, will help um alert people to the kind of threat that China under the CCP poses uh because you know the great thing about democracies is uh free speech and the capacity uh to criticize authoritarian regimes um without too much fear so uh more power to you.
1: Uh well this is the fastest growing podcast in America so uh Hopefully, this will take off like wildfire. Thanks a lot, Clive. It was really, really great to have you. Such a pleasure to meet you.
0: Thank you, Clive. Nice to be here. Thanks very
1: much. I appreciate it. Yeah, bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, thanks to everyone for tuning in. We really enjoyed that episode here on America's Fastest Growing Podcast. You can find us uh, wherever you access your podcasts. If you have any questions about us, just go to www.hudson.org and uh, we hope to see you next week and every week following that with a, a guest like the one we had today, somebody who's interesting and knowledgeable about things that are going on in our world. Take care.